So there you go, and welcome to Resistance Radio. I am John Kane. I am your host, along with Regan DeLoggins, who will be joining me later on in the program. Um, I got something I want to talk about before we get an update from Regan on line three. Um, this is an issue that some of you may be somewhat familiar with. It's, uh, you know, since the social justice, racial equity awakening, I guess, uh, this is gained some momentum, in, at least in conversation. Um, but it's also, the, this is a policy, you know, kind of a policy or program or training that many schools, businesses, frankly, uh, you know, government offices have um, began to engage with. And what I'm talking about is diversity, equity, and inclusion training. And and of course, it also gets called racial equity, social justice. I mean, it, get, it gets a bunch of a bunch of labels. But at the end of the day, it is the intent is to try to mitigate some of the um, uh, impacts that marginalized people are experiencing, either in the workplace or whatever environment they happen to be in. So like I said, school, um, you know, work, whatever. Um, but you know it actually goes beyond just the people who are affected you know in a workplace or in a, or in a da daily atmosphere the whole idea of diversity equity and inclusion training and policies is to pre to prepare people not only for that workspace not only for that space that they're in but for when they go into the community when they go into the broader region or fr frankly when they face the world it, it part of it isn't it, it, a lot of times it gets um, there's a large concentration on racism um, or, you know, some other type of uh, oppression of, of marginalized people. And it is it is meant to try to open up eyes. And of course, this isn't critical race theory that, you know, that uh, that so many people are clamoring about on the right. Um, but it, it certainly probably probably brushes up against that line sometimes because. The whole idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion training is to try to get those who are essentially empowered, you know, so if you're talking about the school, you're talking about the staff. If you're talking about a company, you're talking about management. You know, you're talking about those who are interacting with people who may not necessarily be in the positions of power or control or authority to, um, to be heard. And, and one of the keys to diversity, equity, and inclusion training is this idea of equity of voice. This idea that everybody can be heard, but and more important than, than the voice is the ears. The whole idea of equity of voice is, is to encourage people to listen more and perhaps talk a little less. I mean, if you're in a room of 10 people, you shouldn't have more than, you know, more, more than 10% of, uh, uh, of, of the space in terms of your voice being heard. You should be listening to the nine other people. And, you know, look, this isn't about forcing people to speak when they're uncomfortable, but it is about hearing other people. Now, one of the biggest problems that I have with this idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion training or policies in schools is that there are many schools still today that have native mascots race-based mascots and, and of course i say race-based but it's but it, it's you know predominantly almost exclusively native people who are being used for for mascots you cannot have by any by any measure an effective diversity equity and inclusion program or policy in your school if you've got a race-based mascot i mean the whole idea of diversity equity and inclusion is to is to again is to mitigate microaggressions, this idea of intentional or unintentional ways of insulting or degrading or, you know, stereotyping a, a marginalized people. And, and frankly, that's exactly what, what a mascot does. And I'm listening to, I'm watching some of this stuff play out online. Schools that are trying to figure out, well, how do we use our mascot in a positive way to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion? Well, you can't. I mean, look, I just did an interview uh, that'll come out on my podcast pro uh, probably tomorrow, um, which is my Let's Talk Native podcast. Not to be confused with this show that becomes a podcast, but with this is my specific Let's Talk Native podcast. 
where I interviewed Stephanie Freiberg. And now Stephanie Freiberg is a uh, a psychologist. She teaches at the uh, University of Michigan right now. Uh, she's a researcher, and she has done some of the what I would call the preeminent work on analyzing and you know basically breaking down or unpacking is one of the words that she uses uses unpacking the mascot debate and you know i asked her point blank i says you know can you have by any measure a diversity equity and inclusion program in a school that has a has a native mascot she says no they cannot coexist and and of course I, I knew what the answer was going to be before I asked it, but I figured, well, let, me, let a professional who, who does this kind of thing, who understands the social nature and uh, you know, child development and all of that stuff. And, uh, and, she, and there was no hesitation. She said, no, the, the, the two cannot exist. Well, there's a few things that also can't exist with, uh, with diversity, equity, and inclusion program. If you don't have a full staff or like i said in, in in the place of a company or even governance if you don't have the senior officials if you don't have the the management or the staff buying in to this notion that this is this necessary if you've got even a a, a portion of your your power brokers so to speak that are just blowing this off and think that it's foolish and that there is no necessity now, and again, I want to be clear. Oftentimes when we're talking about native mascots, we're talking about schools that don't have native people in them. <laughs> so we're talking about people who are being, um, again, uh, mocked, who aren't there to, you know, to experience the mocking necessarily. But for those of us who are native, we know that it, it exists. We know that that's out there. So some of the argument can be, well, what's the big deal? There's no native people in the school. What's the big deal? There's no black people in the school. What's the big deal? There's no Asian, there's no uh, LGBTQ two, two spirit people in the, in the school. There's no trans people. I mean, when you, when you hear people say, well, it's, it's not the big deal because we don't have those people. Yeah, but your people will interact with, the, with, with uh, marginalized people. And, and there's no question about that at some point in your life. And the more that you are ingrained with this acceptability of microaggression intentional or unintentional the more you're going to carry that forward so if you can't nip this at the in the bud at uh, in, a, in a grade school or in a high school then those students who graduate and, and become functioning adults are going to carry some of that microaggression with them into the workplace or into look if they run for office they may even look they may even run on some of this microaggression kind of platform but but to address it in schools is just so important. It, it's just so important to get to get people to understand that there there are there, there is I should say um, embedded endemic systemic racism or bigotry in in so many aspects of our life and in schools in particular where history science, literature, not so much math, <laughs> but history, science, and literature, you can, it is so clear how that information is delivered and who it's coming from, who are considered these, you know, uh, these standard bearers for, for literature, science, and, uh, and history. When you understand who are, who's marginalized in, in some of that literature, Who's marginalized in uh, as far as scientific achievement and and certainly these heroic figures of the United States or, or whomever? It, it is clear that there's bias there, and of course, in in many cases it's, it goes beyond bias. We're talking about just flat out lies. I mean, much of history has been so manipulated and it's so been so propagandized that there has to be almost a course on critical thinking <laughs> that they should go along with 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 any of the with any of these uh, these other uh, uh, areas of study because i think we do have to question some of what we're uh, we're accepting as again these these grand masters of, of american literature or or the, the scientific achievements because every step along the way you will find that there have been marginalized people who have impacted those areas of study. It's just that they're not talked about. So 
if you are a marginalized person and you never are allowed to be to believe even that somebody like you has had an achievement in uh, you know in, in any of these areas, then you automatically consider yourself less than those who are advanced. You know, again, white people, white white authors, white writers, white scientists. You know, um, all the historical figures are are white essentially. And and even the ones who aren't, they get heroized because of how assimilated or how much they buy in to the American narrative. Frederick Douglass, for instance, yeah, everybody, the the most known uh, abolitionist in American history is Frederick Douglass. But nobody ever talks about how his racial bias was towards Native people, or how much he bought in to the 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 american story the uh, and all the iconography the, the idea that that he believed that you know the western world expansion and the expansion of the the american dream was was so critical even though as a black man he saw his people deprived so much of it but and the crazy part is what he was really advocating is that black people should be able to be just as 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 oppressive as white people and and indeed he was but see nobody's going to teach that right so you know even from a native standpoint you know i i know what happens is is native um uh, code talkers are always elevated as these heroes of uh, of america but they never really tell the whole story about how native people were forced into some of those uh, those positions yeah it's 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 great to heroize people 50 years you know 60 years after the fact but the fact of the matter is you you simply it it just doesn't work that way it just doesn't work that way and you know because you realize that sometimes these these people were faced with either jail time or or enlisting in the, in the enlisting in the armed forces and you also find out that their um their uh pressure to be a part of the this the these codes and this code talking really comes down to um, either being treated uh, badly uh, from a racist standpoint, and oftentimes even when they were become they had become code talkers. Most people don't realize this, but code talkers were there was basically orders to shoot a code talker if they looked like they were going to be captured. So I mean, again, when I when I think about what gets what gets elevated in American history, it's always the most assimilated people. You're, you know, you'll hear about Native people enlisting in the armed forces at a high rate, but you don't hear about heroizing folks like Regan DeLoggins out there on line three fighting to, to, to save the environment. You're not going to see all of those people who have been the activists, who have been promoting, you know, to, a, to some extent, you'll see a certain amount of it with civil rights and especially black civil rights. But you don't see a whole lot of native people being brought in, into that conversation. I mean, most people don't even know who, who Jose Zarchevez. They they wouldn't know that because it's not taught. And so, if you're a marginalized per person, you know whether you're considered a person of color or not, you are not going to see people like you represented in a in a heroism fashion, put it, a heroized fashion. And so th that's part of the problem. Now, and if you've got teachers. And, and again, when I say teachers, you can still look, you know, look at this in terms of management in a company or, you know, senior officials in, in governance or, or, or whatever else. But if you've got the power brokers who are not buying into this, who are basically either going through the motions, you know, and, and look, you can see it in everything from body language to, you know, to facial expressions, but but also in, in the di dismissive tones that, that are taken. Those people have to be approached and trained before anybody else has to be has to experience their reaction to this idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion training. Now, so we hear about this a lot. And look, if you've never heard of this, then that's a problem because, it, for one thing, almost every school has a diversity, equity, and inclusion policy. Almost every grade school, high school has one. If you don't know it, it's because they aren't telling you, uh, and and or you have you basically have been the 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 people who should be teaching you this and exposing you to this don't take it seriously, which is a problem, which makes it ineffective 
because the bottom line is, if you want to change the system, if you want systemic change, then you have to have buy-in from the people who are supposed to be implementing that change. So if your teachers, if your you know your school administration, if your if your managers in your business, you know, or, or whomever, if they haven't bought into the necessity, if they don't see the need, then they'll never see the change. And we will continue the same cycle, the same cycle of uh, of women being marginalized, uh, you know, bigotry towards LGBT two uh, two spirit folks, um, racism. And look, I know I spent a lot of time talking about the mascot issue because to me the mascot issue is so emblematic, and the fact that you can actually have schools today that will that will suggest that they have a full functioning diversity, equity, and inclusion policy and still have a native mascot just goes to show you the ignorance involved in in the rationale behind these kinds of things. And it also goes to show you the lack of uh, seriousness that, that any of these folks have towards this stuff. The fact that they can they could suggest that they can stereotype a people, marginalize the people even more by casting them in the past with this imagery and the idea that they can encourage other students who are not of that marginalized group, who are not native to play Indian and to, and then to grab up all of the racist tropes associated with, with warriors and warlike and aggression and, and all this other stuff, because it, it fits in with what their, their sports uh, characteristics. I mean, this is the absurdity of it all. So, rather than teaching about native people you actually create a characteristic profile of a people that doesn't really exist you're just making it up to serve you so so what you can be intimidating on a football field but this is this is what i find frustrating because again since the murder of george floyd and brianna taylor we have heard a lot more about diversity equity and inclusion training but we only hear about it. We, we, we hear about it, but we never see the systemic change. We never see the implementation. We never see the, the change that's supposed to come with this, this kind of training. And we also look, depending on what subject matter is being taught. Look, here's one of the problems that exists in a lot of these small rural schools. You've got, you've got people who get hired for teaching positions, not because they are qualified teachers, but because they might be able to coach basketball or baseball or football. So they may have you know, some other skill set that may be driving their, you know, the desire of a school to hire them <laughs> to teach English you know, or, or whatever, you know, history. That's a problem. That's a problem because, look, there's a lot in the whole area of sports and, and uh, competition and a lot of the, the, the macho you know, male dominance associated with, with sports competition. And look, even as, and I say this, I'm not just talking about the male sports because oftentimes you're going to have male coaches on the, uh, on the girl side too. And so that, that macho, that, you know, that ultra male type you know, um, competition can overshadow, regardless of, of, of the gender of the, of, of the sports participants. And if that, that coach is also the English teacher or the history teacher, all of a sudden you start hearing history being taught in sports metaphors or sports metaphors being used from historic metaphors. And th this is, again, the mischaracterization of, of what the subject matter is supposed to be. And, and, and again, you, you look at most of these schools, most kids are not athletes. Most kids will, will not be on the starting football team or the starting basketball team you know, or, or, or lacrosse team. They won't be. Most of the kids are sitting in that classroom and frankly, they may not even fully understand the sports metaphors. And I'm not saying this, is because, this is, has nothing to do with ignorance, but because these sports metaphors only have a real effect for people who've experienced that level of, of competition, I guess, or, or, or understand you know, the emotions that go with those things. 
So this is this is the problem. And and I, honestly, I think the idea of diversity, equity, inclusion becomes a problem not only associated with marginalized people in terms of groups that you can break them up into, like again ethnicities or gender or uh, you know or other types of preferences, religious beliefs, but even the the athlete versus the non-athlete you can have a certain level of of exclusion and and uh and oppression and bigotry so this is a major problem you know as far as i'm concerned in at the school level because again those kids are going to graduate from school and then they're going to go into college and they're going to experience perhaps more of the same and unless we take seriously this idea of diversity equity and inclusion training and policy and and look, a policy is meaningless if there's no enforcement mechanism. If you have teachers, if you have managers, if you have people in positions of power, whether it's the governor of the state of New York, you know, or the president of the United States, if you have people who, who insist on being bigots, who insist on being racist, who insist on being misogynist, I mean, this isn't even just about whether they're breaking the law. This is about breaking policy, you know, going against policies that have been you know, really thought out. Many of these 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 policies and these and these trainings, there's look, there are millions of dollars being spent every year across the country to try to implement these changes, and yet some people can just just flout the effort. They can they can just dismiss it. And especially if they're in positions of power or positions of popularity. So these things not only become a problem of implementation because of the, the power of the people who are dismissing it, but the popularity of it, because with that popularity comes power. So the popularity of those people, nobody's going to stand up to them. You know, uh, nobody's going nobody's to oppose the winning football coach. So this is where... These things should be clearly defined. And you know what else should need, needs to be clearly defined? What actually is microaggression? I mean, we need to understand that when, when something is being said, or, or whether it's expressions or whether it's some sort of practice that, that is insulting or demeaning or degrading to anybody, even if that, even if it's degrading to somebody who's not in the classroom or who's not in the the workstation, because the, you know, one of the problems is you're going to run into somebody, you're going to leave that school, you're going to leave your workplace, you're going to leave that government position, and you're going to have to interact with somebody who you ha you had to look the other way when you, when you heard them being marginalized by microaggression in your workspace, in your school space. So it needs to be identified and it needs to be eliminated. And there should be consequences to those people in power who refuse to, to fully implement or accept. And look, I, I know there's a lot of politics associated with, with who gets hired for, you know, uh, in, in various positions, whether it's in a school, whether it's a school board or whether, you know, wherever it is. I understand that there is a, there's a lot of politics at play. But that's why some of the stuff needs to be written and there needs to be recourse. I mean, it doesn't make sense. You know, one of my biggest grievances about the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, it's great to put all those articles out there about what, what nation states should be, you know, how they should conduct themselves in terms of the minimum standard for sort of survival and dignity of Native people. But if there's no consequence, just to sell, say somebody, well, you broke the rules and that's it? You just get told that you broke the rules and there's no consequence for breaking those rules. There needs to be consequence. And, you know, look, it, could, it might be suspension. It might be fines or it might be, you know, look, you're not you're not suited for this job. You cannot be a school teacher if you cannot accept that there are racial issues in the school, that, that there are issues of oppression. Uh, and uh, inequity in, in the school. If you can't accept that we all have a responsibility to eradicate some of the inequities and to make sure that we are not just tolerant of diversity, 
but respectful of diversity. And there is a difference. These are things that are so important. And, and, and we're watching this stuff happen. And, and of course, it, it gets politicized. I mean, you, you have the right that is so far against things like critical race theory. And frankly, they, they have a difficult time speaking out against diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings because most schools already have them somewhat embedded, even though most of those policies have been really dated and they need to be upgraded. And many of them have been updated since this, you know, this racial reckoning that we've been experiencing. So it's hard to see a teacher who might, who, or, you know, again, a manager or whomever that will be outspoken against it, but they just, they'll just be dismissive, which frankly can be just as, you know, just as detrimental to the idea of having a policy in the first place. So I think this is really, really an important topic. You know, like I, I put out a couple of memes and I, you know, where I made it clear, you cannot have diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, programs in your school and a native mascot at the same time. The two cannot coexist because the attempt to make them coexist makes a, as much of a mockery of this idea of equity as the, as the mascots themselves are, which, which is exactly what they are. They are a mockery. But to make a mockery of a policy or a, a training system or a program that is supposed to address this in a systemic way, you know, and, and one in which, like I said, millions of dollars are, are being spent. I mean, it really is, it's a travesty. And for all those people who complain about their tax dollars and who complain about, you know, what, how much they are being, you know, fleeced by the government, these, this is your local school. This is where your property tax goes to. And the necessity of this diversity, equity, inclusion training is to protect your children and prepare your children. And some of that is as important as the, as the subjects they're learning, you know, the, the main subjects they're, they're learning in school. Because their ability to work with other people, look, we hear it all the time. Well, the global marketplace, the global economy, the global this, the global that. Well, if you leave your little town of Cambridge, New York, and still have a whole bunch of little biases, biases that, are, that are so embedded in you that you are ill-prepared to deal with, with a diverse population or to have any level of true inclusion by people who look different than you, and I don't mean to pick on Cambridge all the time, but I had to, then that's a problem. Then that is a problem. And look, we see this all over the place. Part of the reason that we have, you know, I've got my, co my co-host, just now getting out of jail from standing up to defend the environment is that lack of understanding of diversity, equity, inclusion. We, it is so easy to cast a, somebody who's different than you as the enemy, as the bad person, good versus evil. And that, you know, good is always white and bad is always color. And, and that's what we experience. And I know that you, you're, some people are, are listening to this thing. Well, there he goes again. But this is the truth, folks. You have to understand that some of the most important changes that most people would, would, would acknowledge as positive changes in the United States came because people fought for that change. They didn't vote for a change. They didn't lobby Congress for a change. They took to the streets and look, they had some of their own blood spilled for, for some of that change. And as a native person, I see it all the time as we're trying to defend the water that goes into our territories, as we're trying to defend the sovereignty of our people, the land of our people, we see it all the time. So I wanted to talk about that. I know that I'm gonna have, uh, have Regan joining me, but let me take a few minutes here because I didn't do it at the beginning of the show. I, w I want to remind people that Resistance Radio is listener-supported radio. And I could not be happier about being on WPFW in Washington, D.C. and WBAI in, uh, in New York City. I mean, two of the, the most important markets, radio markets, media markets in, in the United States. And the fact that PFW and BAI have, they both given Regan and I an opportunity to, to have space on their airwaves once a week 
to offer a native perspective on issues that impact us all. Look, diversity, equity, inclusion training, we're all impacted by that. And it's and it isn't specifically about native people, although there you can't talk about this kind of training without addressing you know the inequities that native people experience. But the fact that these stations are giving space to Regan and I every week, for the most part, every week, to offer a native perspective on issues that affect us all and to bring up native issues that most of you are oblivious to. Look, for the most part, the majority of Americans don't even know native people still exist. Why? <laughs> well, some of it has to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion in, uh, in schools because history isn't taught properly. Mascots cast us in the past. History casts us in the past. We are not talked about as a contemporary people. So in the absence of having stations like WPFW and WBAI giving space to native voices that are not just going to make you feel good. Look, our, we, are not, we are not on the air to just check a box. To say, okay, yeah, they, yeah, they, they got a native program. Nobody, we don't listen to it, but they got a native program. No, you do listen to it. Why? Because I know that we're piquing your curiosity, but we're also maybe picking at the scab a little bit. You know, you've got, you, you've got some injuries that, that won't quite heal. Why? Well, part of it has to do with you know, cognitive dissonance. Part, part of it has to do with the idea that you're being sold a bill of goods about being an American and all that is exceptional about that. While you know that there's so much about being in the United States that has an ugly part of the history. And that's part of what we're here to talk about. So I've got to ask you, if you are listening in w, in, on WBPFW in Washington, WPFW in Washington, D.C., I'm asking you to go to the phone lines and make a contribution to the station and do it in the name of the show. I want you to go to 202-588-9739 or go online to WPFWFM.org and follow the prompts. Look, you can make a one-time donation. You can become a, a subscriber and make a monthly donation, do it in the name of the station, and I greatly appreciate it. If you're listening in New York City on WBAI, you can, I want you to go to the pledge line, 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. And again, make a donation of any size. You can you know, put a delayed donation, you, you do, but make a contribution to this station that you're listening to. And do it in the name of this program. I greatly appreciate it. You can also go online to to give to WBAI.org. That's give the number to WBAI.org. And, of course, if any of you are listening online, whether you're listening online on uh, WBAI's uh, website, WBAI.org, or uh, WPFWFM.org, um, you can be listening anywhere. And so you can you have the choice. You can make a donation to WPFW or to WBAI. But, look, if you listen to the station... Whether you listen to it online, look. If you listen to the podcast of this show, uh, I, I put it out every every week. I, I take the audio, put it up. If you listen to the podcast, look. We wouldn't we wouldn't have the Resistance Radio podcast if we didn't have the Resistance Radio program. So make a contribution to WBAI or WPFW, and I would greatly appreciate it. Last week we had a we had a tough. It was a tough show. Uh, um, it was a really good show. Um, but Regan was on the road. Um, Regan was on uh, on their way out to uh, to Line Three in Minnesota to do a couple of things. One one thing is Regan had to face some charges, and from what I understand, was arrested. And only when I say recent, I mean like real recently, just got out of jail. Uh, and this is a fight that Regan is making for all of us, and for those of us who can't go on the front lines. We should really appreciate and acknowledge those who do. And, and the fact that, that, you know, that Regan has made it out to line three to try to stop this devastating pipeline that has the potential, the potential to do so much damage to the, the, the water and the land. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, they call Minnesota the, you know, the, the, the place of a thousand lakes or something along those lines. Uh, and the reason is because it has so much. I think much. I found Regan. You did. Regan, how are you? Can y'all hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, my God. Wonderful. I'm so glad to be connected with y'all. 
<laughs> well, I worried about you all week because I haven't heard from you. And, and in fact, Reggie and I were just uh, having that conversation saying, well, I hope Rika's okay. Well, I was in jail, but I am now out of jail, which is wonderful. And I'm so happy to be joining y'all um, from Minnesota uh, at the at one of the camps fighting against Line 3. Well, tell me, uh, uh, um, so how have you made out? I mean, are you done or is this something? What's what's your circumstance now? Um, no, I, I'll be here for quite some time, I assume. Uh, we had an action um, just a couple days ago in which we uh, had, a, um, had a truck right outside one of the man camps and myself and a number of other indigenous people locked down to the truck. Um, I was locked down for over nine hours uh, and they had to, you know, extract us. It was really a violent extraction. And so a number, a number of us um, were arrested in doing so. And we were also able to stop a day's work and also bring awareness to uh, how detrimental uh, man camps are to MMIWG2ST, which we talk about so often on this radio show. Right. And it, it was a really good and important place for me to be. So, um, I was, I was in well, jail. And, and when I, you say I lockdown, you mean you, there were those of you that chained yourselves to, um, to the vehicle so they were inoperable? Exactly. So we were, uh, oh. we were in, a, in these uh, arm binders that, had a, you know, that we, we lock, literally lock into on chains um, mm-hmm. and, our, and hold space there um, with the ability you know, to, to, you know, this is all consensual. We put our, we put our bodies on the line consensually, uh, and then the extraction team is brought out, and they have to literally uh, cut through the contraptions in order to, to get us out. So it's right. definitely a really wonderful and um, and successful tactic to stop labor during the day. Uh, and we purposefully did that in front of a man camp so that, you know, the workers, the Enbridge workers that are building this pipeline weren't able to go and perform such egregious acts to our earth and also egregious acts to our our indigenous women, our indigenous femmes, our indigenous non-binary and trans and two-spirit people who are so often targeted for sexual violence. So it was a really empowering um, action to be a part of and something that I, you know, also a very traumatic thing to be a part of, but nonetheless important for this movement. Well, and I think it's important that people realize that, you know, if, you, if you're hearing this and you're thinking, yeah, so you disrupted them for a little bit. The, the, one of the points, and I always try to, to make this, whether it's doing something that causes an, um, perhaps an excessive, an excessive police presence or whatever. Part of this is about costing them money. Every day that they are not productive, it costs them money. Every day Absolutely. that they've got to bring in, you know, paid, uh, paid troops or security or whatever else. And I say this, the same thing when we've had, you know, some of our, our battles with police, uh, with the New York State Police or, or other, uh, you know, county uh, police departments, because when they have to pay the the excessive overtime and the hazard pay and, and, and put and they, they send a bunch of police into an area and they've got to put them up for, with hotel rooms that costs a lot of money. And a part of what, what we have to, part of our gamble is to make it too costly for them to do what they're doing, which is trying to save money by going, by, by doing some shortcuts, by, by trying to make their, um, extraction less expensive and our job is to make it as expensive as possible so they don't do it yeah absolutely and make it as difficult as possible like so often we talk about how um, how when we are arrested it's meant to be a deterrent so that we no longer continue to do this work but also the work that we do is meant to deter the police as well so it's definitely this this conversation a really violent conversation um, but something that needs to be considered in terms of what it looks like um, when we talk about movement work and talking about being deterrent this is this is an important aspect of that well I, I, you know the thing is when when we start to see business proposals that they have to factor in the cost uh, the cost that we are going to incur on their businesses you it makes banks it makes investment uh, um, uh, 
um, companies, you know, really shudder at the whole idea. So, you know, that's that's part of what our goal is. Regan, before you joined, I was talking about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion training, and I was talking primarily about schools, but 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 that same lack of effective diversity, equity, and inclusion training you know, shows itself in places like where you're at there with line three, whether it's whether it's the lack of that kind of training that police have or whether it's the lack of training that that, that extractive industries have. You know, all of these these guys have been trained to be so dismissive and, and so bigoted in their response to, you know, to those of us who would oppose what they do or or are, are there to demonstrate. So I think it's important that people realize that this this whole notion of equity um, training and diversity training and inclusion tra training, it isn't just about you know, um, anti-bullying in school. It is that, but it's much bigger than that. But also, it's, you know, honestly, I, I feel like in these situations, um, specifically like with violent um, extractions and with uh, blockade movements, it's that the diversity and inclusion trainings are irrelevant. Um, no, no and, and I, 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 no, go ahead, go, keep, go ahead, um, go ahead, I'm sorry. When we, when we encounter the police, everything is out the window. You know, they react as they react within their own, um, within their own positions of power, within their own violent tendencies. And even, and that's why I'm such an anti-reformer. I do not believe in reformist movements when it comes to the police, because as someone who's been in the hands of the police multiple times, there is nothing to reform about it. No diversity and inclusion training could ever properly train someone to not be a white supremacist, to not be a, uh, you know, someone who is an, who, someone who assaults people, a rapist, a settler, a colonialist. Like, those are things that we cannot divorce from these people's personhoods when they're doing these kinds of violent extractions. And, and I think that that's really important to understand is that there is no reforming police. There's no diversity and inclusion training. No, and, and I, I agree with that. I don't know if I, if I just lost you. I agree with that. But my, my point is less about training the police and, and all this so-called cultural sensitivity training, but more so that if you allow this kind of bigotry to be encouraged at the school level, at the grade school level, and I'm not just talking about mascots, but if you allow it to continue in schools where our children are being impacted, that's where some of the, this real bigotry and, and and frankly, some of this, not just microaggression, but what flat out aggression gets realized in these professional, in these in these police departments, in these in these professions. So I'm, I guess, even, even though I, I'm talking about the impact that the the, um, the lack of any kind of diversity uh, training has um, on children. What I what I'm saying is the lack of that at the at the child level um, allows these adults to manifest in the way that they are. Reggie, did we lose? Uh, did we lose Regan? Uh. Regan? I think we may have. I, I lost the last word that uh, Regan had spoken, but I'm so glad to have have, have Regan. I'll try again. Yeah, I'm so glad to have Regan join us, especially out there. And, and I agree. You know, I think the idea of trying to make already aggressive and oftentimes racist police departments um, become, what, less racist or less oppressive? Look, part of their job training is to be aggressive, is to be oppressive. It, it is, it's the idea that what they are enforcing is the law and the law is right. Regan's back. Even when, even clearly when the law is wrong. So I agree. Me? Yeah, yeah, we, we can. I, I thank <laughs> I, we lost you for a little bit. And my point that oh, I was, so was, was bringing up was, was really the fact that if you don't address this idea of microaggression with children, this is you're you're going to have people that are are well beyond um, the point of of any kind of you know value when it comes to re reform, as you say, or uh, or any kind of training. You're, I agree. You're not going to change change the attitude of, of existing police departments because of the way they're structured and the, and the systems that they operate in. <laughs> I 
Did we? I, we I'll lost? try again. All right. But I, you know, I, and I and I agree. If if you've ever been on the front lines, and 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 many of us have, and 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 Regan is there now, uh, dealing with with some of this the racial bias that exists by police departments, by these extractive industries, by the people who have the power to affect everything from state legislation to you know to law enforcement to jail terms, you know, and and okay, to inflicting bodily harm. Yeah, Regan, go ahead, please. All right, I, I'm gonna actually just call her up. I mean, call um, Regan up, up again, yep. and yep. um, and you know, we'll you, try, you know we'll what to do, way. John. Yep. Yeah, I mean, we're we're you know we're fading fast in our in our time slot here, but and I do appreciate, in spite of the difficulty getting getting regan to to weigh in from you know on site you know while she's involved in these actions and you know for those who who didn't quite quite catch it you know regan has been involved in locking um you know, a bunch of them locking themselves down on on pieces of equipment trying did these uh, these men at these man camps from from doing this you know this this detrimental work to the environment they're they're trying to put these pipelines in they are disrupting waterways aquifers um lakes streams all of it and and so folks like regan and some of the the folks that regan is one more time they're doing everything again all right regan we have you again uh wonderful i hope so yes yes you know please do uh, weigh in if you would no, I'm so sorry, y'all. I've been trying to connect and going in and out of service is difficult. Um, but I'm glad that I can still be here, even if it's just in moments, because it's such an important, that we're having such important conversations on this radio all the time. But I did want to just highlight that um, the conversations that we're having about interconnectedness, like, of course, these kinds of education systems are detrimental. We see how they influence communities. And in the end, we see what it, what it can look like in its most extreme case. And in its most extreme case, it's police violence. It's extreme police violence against indigenous bodies and sovereignty. Well, and and I would argue that some, the other area of extreme cases has to do with with the overt racist justice departments, the the ones that that beyond the police, these these judges and prosecutors that 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 manage to frame us as you know some rather than those folks who are fighting for freedom and fighting for people and fighting for land casting us as the enemy it isn't just the police it's it's the whole system all the way through all right well uh, you know as as you are <laughs> in many ways painfully aware it is very difficult to maintain uh connectivity with uh with with Regan from Minnesota, not exactly in the an area with the with the strongest cell phone signal. I do appreciate, um, you know, and, and I hope everybody can appreciate the fact that that folks like Regan have put themselves in these positions to to defend, um, you know, the land that we all depend on, depend the, the water that we all depend on, the food that comes from the wild rice and so much of. Uh, you know the indigenous foods that that native people in in the Minnesota area, what people know as Minnesota, have have depended on for thousands and thousands of years, long before you know these in- extractive industries and these billionaires uh, who who profit from them. Um, it is it is so important that there are people who who put themselves out on the front lines and and look, I know it's difficult for people to do it all the time. But if you ever have the opportunity, if you ever have the chance, if you ever have the time in your life and the, uh, you know, and look, I, I always do. I'll tell you, I recommend for for both men, women, two spirit people before you have family members really counting on you, whether it's you know your elders or whether it's your children, when you have that that freedom to to resist it, I, I ask you to do it. I ask you to fight for a cause because nothing changes for the better if we just become complicit in what we know is wrong. 
And that's what we see so much of. We see so much racism, so much bigotry, so much bias that we allow because we can either try to distance ourselves from it by saying, well, it, that doesn't affect me directly or it's not affecting my loved ones directly when it may only be one step or two steps away. So it is so important that when you have the opportunity, however much or however little time in your life you can spend to, to, fighting, to fight for a cause, that you do so. And look, research, understand what you're fighting for. You know, understand how to be an ally, how to be an advocate, how to be an accomplice, if you will. And I'm not talking about storming the Capitol like those morons on, you know, on January 6th did. But I'm talking about really confronting some of this racism and confronting some of this, uh, you know, some of this detriment to our, our planet. You know, Regan brought up you know, a couple of weeks ago that that report on climate change. And there could be nothing that should, for all to talk about COVID-19, nothing to any of us should be as scary as what's coming down the pike when it comes to, to climate change. And, and I don't care where you live. You know, if you live in, in an urban area on a waterfront, yeah, you're in some serious trouble. But you know what? If you live away from that urban area on a waterfront, there's a good chance that you're going to be impacted by an exodus of people. 10 million people leaving New York City, where do you think they're going to go? You know, all those folks from Florida and, uh, you know, the the Gulf Coast, where do you think they're going to go? We're all going to be impacted. And look, knowing how, how, how Americans feel about refugees, do you think Americans are going to feel any different? I'll tell you right now, living in an area that is considered the area of Western New York, these people here can hate New Yorkers as much as they could hate, you know, an, an Afghan uh, refugee. And you're going to see such divisiveness. This is, we're facing some really, really troubling times. And so I'll tell you, I can't applaud those who are still putting themselves out on the line to to defend the planet, to defend the water, to defend the land, and to defend you know indigenous populations, I I, I can't I can't praise them enough. All I can say is uh, I'm glad that we have folks like like Regan DeLoggins, and um, and I hope more of you can be inspired by some of the the great work that Regan is doing. I know that just about wraps it up. Again, if you're listening to us on WPFW, I ask you to go to the phone lines, 202-588-9739. If you're listening to us in New York City on WBAI, 212-209-2950. Those are the numbers to call to make a pledge to the station in the name of Resistance Radio with John Kane and Regan DeLoggins. I want to thank you for listening to us. And again, I want to thank Regan for you know, struggling all, as, as she may uh, to, to join us from, from Minnesota. This is John Kane for Regan DeLoggins, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.